ignition sequence start. Three, two, one. Lock and load. It's time for the gun rack with your hosts, Joey and Drew. Hello and welcome to the gun racks, Nord Desert Institute School of Farm Technology's official podcast. I'm Josiah Upper Folks. Call me Joey and with me we have one Drew Poplin. We got Drew Poplin with us, folks. Ladies and gentlemen, he's real. He's here. And we are ready to dive into an episode very relevant to today. As I'm sure you guys know, December 7th is Pearl Harbor Day, and uh, it is it has been 1941. I have a brain, 81 years mm-hmm. uh, to the day uh, since the Empire of Japan attacked the American naval forces and civilians at Pearl Harbor. We are going to do a little bit of a talk about that. Drew has tracked down a story that we think is really cool from history.com about tales of Pearl Harbor heroics. A lot of people focus in on the tragedy of Pearl Harbor, and and we don't want to subtract from that in any way, shape, or form. But we also want to highlight some of the amazing things that were done that day by Americans in a hellacious situation. But before we do any of that, we've got some Drew's clues to do, and we got to talk about SDI a little bit. So Drew, why don't you kick us off? So last week, the answer was the Winchester Model 21. Pretty cool firearm. You should look it up. This week, this powerful semi-automatic gas-operated handgun was originally designed for big game hunting. It fires a 475 Magnum cartridge, and it is famous for its use in the cinematic masterpiece known as Death Wish 3. That movie is wild. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I oh, definitely I, have not. Is I mean, it all, an older movie? Is it new? Yeah. So uh, Charles Bronson. Oh, okay. He's the star of those. All right, uh, all right. So, yeah, no, we... We'll have the answer for you next week. If you think you know what the answer is, please feel free to comment on uh, when we post this on YouTube, comment on Podbean, or you can send us an email at marketing at sdi.edu. Marketing at sdi.edu. Don't forget, if you ever want to put in guesses for the clues or just want to say hello, uh, simply put the gun rack in your topic so we know who you are addressing. All righty. Now, Ad read number one. What does that mean for us, Drew? Are we going to talk about SDI? We're going to talk about SDI. Excellent. SDI is an online school. We are based out of Tempe, Arizona, and we specialize in firearms technology and unmanned slash uncrewed technology. Well, this is a firearms podcast, so let's focus a little bit on the firearms aspect of SDI real quick. We got two programs for you right now. We have an Associate of Science in Firearms Technology, and we have a certificate program. Both of those courses are jam-packed, full of knowledge. And so if you are interested in learning more about firearms and maybe getting your start in a 
career and firearms. Head to www.sdi.edu for more information. Be sure to reach out to our admissions department. If you have any questions, they'd love to talk to you and help you out. And let's carry on with the show. Absolutely. So we are looking at Heroes of Pearl Harbor today. And uh, Drew dug this up courtesy of history.com. That is, of course, the History Channel's website. And uh, this one is a little bit of an older story with them, but one we're really excited to share with you guys. And uh, we're just going to read through this thing a bit. And I think we're just going to switch off. Um, Talking about these stories should be quick hitters, and we're excited to share them with you. Drew, do you want to lead it out? Yes, sir. So the first one is Samuel Foucault. And it says, Missouri-born Samuel Foucault had a front row seat to the devastation at Pearl Harbor from aboard the USS Arizona, a battleship that was heavily bombed during the first wave of the attack. The 42-year-old lieutenant commander was having breakfast when the ship's air raid sirens first sounded around 7.55 a.m. He immediately rushed to the quarter deck, only to be strafed by enemy fire, and then knocked out cold when a bomb fell just feet away from him. Though dazed, Foucault jumped to his feet after regaining consciousness and began directing firefighting operations. Moments later, he became the Arizona's senior surviving officer after another bomb detonated the ship's ammunition magazine, killing more than a thousand men. As burned and maimed soldiers poured onto the deck, Foucault ignored gunfire from passing aircraft and calmly led efforts to evacuate his sinking ship. Quote, I can still see him standing there. Unquote. Arizona crewman Edward Wintzlaff later remembered, quote, ankle deep in water, stub of a cigar in his mouth, cool and efficient, oblivious to the danger about him, unquote. Foucault was among the last men to abandon ship. He and two fellow officers then commandeered a boat and braved heavy fire while picking up survivors from the fire-streaked waters. He was awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions at Pearl Harbor was later promoted to rear admiral upon his retirement from the Navy in 1953. That's pretty sweet. I also forgot to mention at the beginning, this was written by Evan Andrews uh, at history.com. So we want to make sure we're giving credit there for uh, the person we're reading. But uh, it's pretty intense. And uh, this is going to be number two here, Peter Tomek. Um, I'm just going to go right into it. This is directly from the source. Around the same time Arizona was being bombed, the training and target ship USS Utah was rocked by two torpedo strikes from Japanese aircraft. The aging vessel soon began to list to one side as water flooded into its hold. Inside the boiler room, Chief Water Tender Peter Tomek ordered his crew to abandon ship. After ensuing that his men had escaped the engineering spaces, the Croatian immigrant and World War I veteran returned to his posts and single-handedly secured the boilers, preventing a, a potential explosion that would have claimed many lives. USS Utah rolled over and sank just minutes, minutes later. 58 men, Tomek among them, went down with the ship. The 48-year-old was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor for his life-saving actions, but in an unusual twist, the Navy was unable to locate any of his family members. His award, went unclaimed for nearly 65 years until 2006, when it was finally presented to a relative during a ceremony in split Croatian. Yeah, very interesting. Absolutely. Um, I don't know how 
I mean, there's millions of stories like this of like heroism, but just having the wherewithal to know that you're probably not making it out of there and still having the courage to save, you know, so many lives is really, really, it's baffling. It really is. I feel like it's one of those things that everybody says that they, they think they could do, but you really don't have any idea. Mm-hmm. Unt- until you're faced with a very specific set of circumstances and uh yeah it's i, w- I wish i could uh put it into better words yeah it's just baffling all right you want to get into the next one yes sir this next one is uh actually talking about two people so we're going to talk about george welch and kenneth taylor army air corps pilots george welch and kenneth taylor spent the evening before the pearl harbor attack attending a formal dance and playing poker until the wee hours of the morning. And um, just as a side, if you look at their picture, they look like their buddies. They look, they do. They, they look like they probably had some shenanigans. They were still sleeping off their night of partying when they were awakened around 8 AM by the sound of exploding bombs and machine gun fire. Well, not wanting to miss out on a fight, the pair threw on their tuxedo pants and sped to Halewa airfield in taylor's buick dodging strafing japanese planes along the way just minutes later they became the first american pilots to get airborne after they took off in their p-40 fighters welch and taylor went on to wage a lonely battle against hundreds of enemy planes they even landed at wheeler airfield at one point and had their ammunition replenished before rejoining the fray By the time the attack ended the second lieutenants had shot down at least six fighters and bombers between them Both were awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for their high-flying exploits, and Taylor was given a Purple Heart for a shrapnel wound he received when his P-40 was struck by machine gun fire. Man, I've I've had some crazy nights way back in the day. Now, I think about myself, how I felt the morning after, you know, going presumably on only a couple hours of sleep. You know, the last thing I think I would want to wake up to was a bombing raid. Yeah, I'm trying to think about trying to do that hungover. I'm not saying that they were, but. <laughs> if they did, they're, <laughs> that kind of makes it slightly cooler. Yeah, I mean, it already a little bit feels like you're being bombed when you wake up hungover. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do they? I don't think they cancel each other out. No. It's intense. Oh, uh, the and, old hair of the dog that bit you, huh? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> All right. Number four, Doris Miller. And I will add to this one, uh, just because it's it's relevant to the narrative you're about to receive. Doris Miller was a, uh, a man of color. And uh, actually, this is a story I think I knew already. It's really cool. Anyway, let's get into it. Doris Miller's skin color usually relegated him to the role of cook and laundry attendant aboard the USS West Virginia. But when the ship was struck by multiple bombs and torpedoes on December 7th, he became one of its most vital crew members. Miller had rushed to his battle station amidships as soon as the shooting started. Finding it destroyed, the amateur boxer sprinted to the quarterdeck and used his hulking frame to help move the injured. Miller was among the men who carried the ship's mortally wounded skipper to safety and then helped pass ammunition, excuse me, to the crews of two 50 caliber machine guns. Despite having no weapons training, he eventually manned one of the weapons himself and began blasting away at the Japanese fighters swarming the ship. It wasn't hard, he later remembered. 
I just pulled the trigger and she worked fine. I think I got one of those planes. They were diving pretty close to us. Miller continued to operate the gun for some 15 minutes until ordered to abandon ship. His actions earned him the Navy Cross, the first ever presented to an African-American. And he was wildly hailed as a war hero in the black press. He later toured the country promoting war bonds before being resigned to the escort carrier Liscombe Bay. Sadly, Miller was among the 646 crewmen killed when the ship was later torpedoed and sunk in 1943. I didn't, I didn't know about that back half mm-hmm. um, until I don't, I don't know if it came across, but the I knew what happened to the Liscombe Bay. Oh, no. I didn't know. He, so I was like, "Oh, sweet, doing war bond." bonds and oh no yeah i heard that where this hesitation is, yeah i was like ah crap um where was the torpedo to Ooh, i don't know off the top of my head um you do the next one and i'll look that up sure so this one is john finn chief petty officer john finn was still lying in bed with his wife when japanese fighter planes descended on his post at the kanoa kanoa i believe it's kanoa bay air station some 15 miles from pearl harbor after throwing on clothes and driving to the base he commandeered a 30 caliber machine gun and dragged it into an open area with a clear view of the sky for the next two and a half hours finn kept up a near constant rate of fire against the strafing hordes of zeros and may have been responsible for destroying at least one plane squad is saying i can't honestly say i hit any he remembered in 2001, but I shot at every damn plane I could see, unquote. Finn suffered more than 20 wounds from bullets and shrapnel during the battle. One shot left him with a broken foot. Another completely incapacitated his left arm. He received medical aid after the attack ended, but returned to duty the same day to assist in Army and American planes. Finn's machine gun heroics won him the Medal of Honor, the only one awarded specifically for combat action during Pearl Harbor. He would go on to survive the war and live to the age of 100. Well, at least that one had a happy ending. It did. Yeah. I've actually got an excerpt for you guys from history.navy.mil about the Liscombe Bay. Little off topic, but not super off topic. So at 5.10 a.m. on November 24th, 1943, Liscombe Bay was a part of a task group street steaming, I am so tongue-tied today, 20 miles southwest of Butaritari Island at 15 knots when a lookout shouted that a torpedo was in the water heading towards the ship. Within moments, the deadly underwater ordnance, one of a spread of torpedoes fired from the Japanese submarine I-175, slammed into the escort carrier's starboard side. It hit at the worst possible location near the bomb magazine. The resulting massive explosions triggered when the bombs ignited killed many crewmen instantly, including some uh, composite squadron uh, 39 pilots sitting in the cockpits of their aircraft on deck waiting for the first launch of the day. Those more fortunate souls remembered the tremendous shock of the blow that threw them to the deck and into bulkheads. In many places, steam lines ruptured and electricity went out, and in some cases, badly burned, and in others, suffering from broken bones and shrapnel wounds, the survivors made their way through shattered hatches, twisted bulkheads, and any hole they could find in an effort to reach topside so they could abandon ship. 
Among those 272 men able to go over the side uh, was the was Captain John Cromelin, one of the five brothers serving as naval officers in the shower when the torpedo hit Cromelin, who was serving as chief of staff to Rear Admiral uh, Henry Mullenix, wore nothing but soap suds and suffered severe burns as he abandoned ship. It goes on. But the one thing I wanted to point there in the beginning of that second paragraph was how many were lost, which I believe was 670, 646. And uh, only 272 survived, which is pretty brutal. You can find the rest of that. If you look up the sinking of USS Liscombe, L-I-S-C-O-M-E, Bay, you can get the rest of that story from Navy.mil if you are interested. Thank you, Joey. Absolutely. That's naval history is fascinating to me. I didn't used to think naval history was super fascinating. Like I was more, you know, growing up more into like sort of the, uh, the stuff that was happening on land. Yeah. Uh, and honestly, it wasn't really until I did the uh, Guadalcanal episode that I all of a sudden was like super into the naval conflicts and like, oh, wow. Okay. Like this is a totally different plane area that should go without saying it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But, you know, how different the tactics are um, and, you know, strategic importance of the airfields and everything like that. It was super cool getting into, which if you haven't listened to the Guadalcanal episode, uh, be sure you check that out. Yeah, absolutely do that. Um, Do you remember how long it was that we published that so people know where to look? Uh, The Guadalcanal episode, I want to say, was back in either August or September. Uh, okay, so not too long ago. Yeah, not, it wasn't, yeah, not too bad. It was episode 117. Wow. And for, you know, this is episode 131. It's crazy. Not that long ago. Yeah. Just feels like a lot when you put it It like that. really does. Um, okay. Let's dive into number six here. George Walters is the name. And uh, let's get right into it. One of the many civilians to win plaudits during the Pearl Harbor attack. George Walters was a dockyard worker who manned a massive rolling crane positioned alongside the dry docked battleship USS Pennsylvania. When the yard came under fire during the early stages of the raid, he valiantly moved his crane back and forth on its track, effectively shielding Pennsylvania from low flying dive bombers and fighters. <laughs> That's so good cool. lord. <laughs> That's um, the coolest sentence I've ever heard. <laughs> no, the coolest sentence is the next one. Walters even tried to use the crane's boom to swat the enemy planes out of the sky. Oh my goodness. The sky is bonkers. The gunners on Pennsylvania initially considered the dock worker a nuisance but they soon realized that his 50-foot-high cab gave him an excellent view of incoming craft. Using the movements of his crane arm as a guide, they were able to return fire against enemy, the enemy to devastating effect. Walters continued his suicidal maneuvers until a Japanese bomb exploded on the dock and sent him to the hospital with a concussion. His actions may have helped save Pennsylvania from destruction, but his story went largely untold until 1957, where it appeared in author Walter Lord's famous book, Day of Infamy. That was one crazy dude. I <laughs> I mean, what do you say that about is, that? <laughs> that is peak redneck vibes is what that is. Yeah. Next, we have Edwin Hill. USS Nevada was the only ship from Pearl Harbor's battleship row to make a break for the open ocean. 
but its great escape might never have happened if not for the efforts of 47-year-old Chief Boatswain Edwin Hill. Shortly after the battle began, Hill and a small crew braved heavy fire and strafing to go ashore and cut the moorings holding the Nevada to the quay at Fort Island. He then dove into the oil-stained water and swam back to his ship to continue the fight. As Hill directed an ammunition train, Nevada ran a gauntlet of enemy fire and tried to steam out of the harbor. The lone battleship was an obvious target, however, and after taking repeated hits from Japanese dive bombers, its captain opted to beach his vessel to avoid bottling up the rest of the fleet. Chief Hill was soon called into action a final time. He was on the forecastle working to drop anchor when a group of Japanese planes rained bombs on the deck, blowing his body off the ship and killing him instantly. Hill was later uh, posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. USS Nevada, meanwhile, survived Pearl Harbor and went on to participate in the Normandy invasion in 1944. Really cool to see how the leadership of one or you know a few men sort of had this domino effect to where the Nevada was at Normandy, you know, and you know helping turn the tide of the European conflict. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. All right, Joe, you got the last one. Yeah, I do. Alrighty. Here we go. Guy's name is Phil Rasmussen. Phil Rasmussen was one of a handful of American pilots who managed to take to the skies during the attack on Pearl Harbor. Like many others, the 23-year-old second lieutenant was still sleeping when his post at Wheeler Field was bombed, but he rushed outside and found an undamaged P-36 fighter sitting on the runway. Still clad in a pair of purple pajamas, Rasmussen took off and joined three other pilots in a dogfight against 11 Japanese aircraft. His plane was slower and less maneuverable than the enemy zeros, but he managed uh, quickly to shoot one of them down. He then crippled another plane before two Japanese pilots raked his P-36 with machine gun and cannon fire, leaving behind some 500 bullet holes. Another zero just narrowly missed when it tried to ram him. Rasmussen's canopy was blown off and he briefly lost control, but managed to right his damaged plane and make a miraculous landing without brakes, rudders, or a tailwheel. Oh my gosh. The young pilot was awarded a silver star for his bravery and went on to serve in the Air Force for 24 years before retiring as a colonel. The absolute onions on this guy, um, I don't even know what to say. And for those of you who have watched your, your documentaries or read your books, you know, the P-36 was not a competitive aircraft within the World War II ecosystem of, of uh, dogfights. It was not, not at all ready to square off with any of these planes. The fact they managed to do anything is, is baffling against much more experienced at the time uh, on, on the whole. Yeah. Um, Japanese fighters uh, and pilots. So, I mean, Wow. Without a canopy, brakes, rudders, or a tailwheel. It just, like, he, like, Did you know wow. wind, wind is flying in your face so much, like, at that point? It, oh, my goodness. It's just insane. It's completely I, insane. There's no factual base for this, but I would hope that somehow phil and george just in the midst of all this somehow like he flew his 
bullet beleaguered plane by the crane and they like high fived each other somehow. Yes. And that's how we lost his tail wheel. Right yeah, it was totally worth it apparently yeah totally worth it and you know talking about pearl harbor it really is miraculous that that didn't just almost completely end our naval efforts yeah it was a disaster for our military but it could and should have been much worse and i think a lot of the credit for that you know there's a lot of factors that play but i think a lot of the credit goes to men like we've talked about in this episode and you know the stories don't stop there as far as bravery absolutely not and you know credit to all these men the ones who survived the ones who you know gave the ultimate sacrifice without their bravery again it could have been much much worse and who knows what kind of world we'd be living in today that is the truth so for these people And for all of our veterans, thank you for what you do, for what you have done. As we wrap up today, we have a tale from the range for you guys, courtesy of Reddit, which I think Drew is going to to read out for us. What do we got today? So this is from Ragnarok Robo. Love that. Love it. Uh, So he says, this happened to a friend of mine. He got an AR-15 and was taking it to the range. He invited one of our friends. The friend isn't very experienced. They're both big Call of Duty players. Uh Uh-oh. Buddy sets things up and hands the AR to our friend. Immediately, the dude shoulders it and is basically pointing it down at the ground rather than downrange. Yeah, you got to coordinate those X, Y axis. (laughs) Yeah, he needs to turn the sensitivity on. Yeah, he does. He's he's definitely a former... uh, console player learning pc for the first time yes my buddy thinks he's just joking or getting comfortable bang. first shot hits the wood bench of the firing line bang bang two bangs and two more bangs whoa sorry i didn't catch that when i was cultivating the story wood splinters are everywhere yeah he snatched the ar back from him immediately apparently no range master witnessed the event or there would have been hell to pay good lord Important reminder. Good entire uh, Lord. Not all or most or maybe any of the skills you cultivate playing Call of Duty uh, will translate into a real world. That's a good way to say it. That's a good way to say it. Now, if it's battlefield, that's something else. You know, we, you know. Totally. Yeah, obviously. (laughs) And we're going to run around on camels. Um. (laughs) All my Battlefield 1 homies step out. But mm-hmm. no, but seriously, we, uh, uh, that's just so funny. Who are we to tell him he's not, though? You know? <laughs> uh, well, we're two hosts of a podcast that, you know, has a small but passionate cold Small following. but passionate, yes. The Gunwreck Mafia has made themselves known. Oh, I have an update. Speaking of our Gunwreck Mafia. Oh, hit me um, with it. All my, just so you guys know, Drew just put on his glasses to hear this update better. Um, yes. Ladies and gentlemen, I spoke and you acted by a landslide. Their own words. Goblin mode is the year of, or the word of the year. Folks, I know that you guys and only you guys voted, which is what enabled this to take place. 
I'm very proud of each and every one of you. And um, I will uh, be drinking a nice bottle of water in your name later today. Mm. A toast to all our Goblin Mode voters out there who made it happen. Made what, it happen. What's next? Now that we know we have this level of sway. Yeah. I'm thinking we find some influencer that at, puts obnoxious polls out and that's all they do. Mm-hmm. And we we pick whatever answer that they are trying to lead us away from consistently and for months. We're we're gonna make we're gonna make a business anyone who has guru in their LinkedIn title, uh, we're gonna melt their credibility publicly. That's what's <laughs> next for the gun rank mafia. Boys, you heard it. We're on standby. It's time. Yeah. Sorry about it, people. <laughs> cool 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 (laughs) (laughs) well guys thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the gun rack Uh, and remember if you know anyone who has served um especially around times like these um just go out and do something do something nice um the holidays can be a lonely time and um you know, it's great if you are in the position to be able to share some love and share some kindness this year. That is the truth. That is absolutely the truth. Folks, for now, that is the gun wreck. Have fun out there, and uh, we will see you at the range. Sonoran Desert Institute is an online school accredited by the DEAC. It is headquartered at 1555 West University Drive in Tempe, Arizona. For more information about how you can craft your firearms future, visit sdi.edu.